It's a real privilege for me to be standing before you this morning to, to bring forth the Word of God. I remember coming here about 10 years ago to Foothill Bible Church as a sophomore at the Claremont Colleges. And um, I was a squirrely and naive sophomore in college. And about 10 years later, by God's grace, I'm slightly less <laughs> squirrely and naive. But I, I do remember coming uh, 10 years ago in the midst of the busyness of classes and my education, coming here week by week and listening to the preaching of God's word powerfully delivered. And I just remember sitting there thinking, my goodness, this is, this is the word of God. And, and God really used um, the pulpit ministry here at Foothill Bible Church to ground me in my faith, um, to lift my heart heavenward, as it were, um, and to capture my affections as a college student with the, the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And I remember going through Romans 3 when I first came, and, and we were still in Romans 3, and then Romans 4, and slowly through the years we made it through the book of Romans, and my eyes were just opened by the Holy Spirit to see the glory of the gospel um, in Romans. So um, I would just encourage you to be thankful for, for the pulpit ministry that Pastor David has here week in and week out um, as God's word is faithfully proclaimed to us. This morning, I, I would like to take you back to a mysterious and sleepless night in the year 1910. Darkness enveloped both the night sky and the, the mind of a 96-year-old businessman. Over the decades, by means of his shrewdness and intelligence, he had accumulated for himself a massive fortune. He had all that a man could want. A thriving, multiplying business venture, women, heirs, and servants. But the hands of this shrewd man were stained with guilt. They were not innocent. He had dined with the devil, deceiving his associates through the years. And on this night, one of his victims has come back, more powerful than before. And this businessman's life and the life of his family members and servants, and you might even say the souls of millions of people all around the world are in grave danger. I'm speaking of Jacob, the patriarch, the father of the Jewish nation. You see, God had called out Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be a channel of his redemptive blessing to the entire world. The world at this moment in history was characterized by idolatry and immorality. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must be different as the followers of the one true living God. And their ability to channel God's blessing to the entire world depended upon their obedience to God. But on this sleepless night, God's instrument, Jacob, was both unconverted and unusable. You see, Jacob did not have the faith of his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. Saving faith was not hereditary with the patriarchs. Jacob 
had made deception his God. And from a human perspective, God's plan to redeem the world through Jacob and his descendants hung by a slender thread. But from a divine perspective, this thread, this thin thread, was the theater of God's glory. For God delights to display his sovereign power by redeeming and renewing the most unlikely vessels. And Jacob was an unlikely vessel. And in so doing, God receives all the praise. This morning, I want to look with you at God's subjugation of Jacob. And the main takeaway that we have is that for his glory, God saves and sanctifies sinners. So if you leave this morning with any takeaway, it is that God, for his glory, saves and sanctifies sinners. And before we get into this account of the subjugation of Jacob, we need to understand the disease in Jacob's character. We need to understand this disease to see how Jacob got to where he had, to, to where he had been this, this fateful night. You see, Jacob from birth had relied on scheming and deception for his personal advancement. He was born holding on to Esau, his twin's heel, and he was thus named Jacob, the heel grabber, the cheater, the supplanter. And Jacob's character also reflected his name. He had cunningly manipulated his twin Esau to rob Esau of his inheritance. And he even lied to his beloved father Isaac to steal Isaac's blessing. When living with his uncle Laban, he schemed to take away Laban's healthy livestock and make them his own. And in the scriptures, in the book of Genesis, we are only told of these instances of, of Jacob's deception. But you get the sense, you and I get the sense as we read Genesis, that this was only the tip of the iceberg. How many more people did Jacob step over to get what he wanted? As a con artist is skilled in forgery, so Jacob is a master of trickery. After Jacob's second offense against Esau, Esau, perhaps rightly, wanted to kill Jacob. So Jacob's mother, Rebekah, sends Jacob out of the land of Canaan, out of the promised land, to live with her brother Laban, hundreds of miles away in the land of Haran. And we arrive at this story with Jacob as God's chosen man, hundreds of miles away from the promised land. And this chosen man has no relationship with God. So God's chosen man, out of the chosen land, out of relationship with God. The Abrahamic promises and God's plan to redeem the world lay on shaky ground indeed. But we praise God that his deliverance of the world does not depend on you and me. But it depends on him and his sovereign power 
alone. And God's plan to redeem the world does not depend on us because we are frail sinners. And God is a God of grace. Now, when Jacob left the promised land, God appeared to him and promised this in Genesis 28, 15. So if you're not there, Genesis 28, verse 15. And God says this to Jacob. He says, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. So as Jacob is leaving the promised land, God appears to him and promises to Jacob to bring him back to the promised land. And Jacob, in response, vows in chapter 28, verses 20 to 21, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Did you hear Jacob's promise there? He says that if God brings him back to the promised land, then the Lord would be his God. This tells us that Jacob, at this point in his life, does not have a relationship with God. The Lord, the covenant God of Abraham and Isaac, was not his God. But Jacob promises that God would be his God if he brings him back to the promised land, to the land of his father. Fast forward 20 years in the future from this point, after many years in the land of Haran with Laban, Jacob receives two wives and, and many children. And 20 years after this vow, God remembered his promise to bring Jacob back to the promised land. And in chapter 31, Verse 3, he comes to Jacob and tells Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob flees from the land of Haran, flees from Laban, comes back to the promised land. And on the night before Jacob re-entered the promised land, while Jacob is still on the eastern side of the Jordan River, Jacob had not kept his end of the deal. He had not fulfilled his vow. He had not made the Lord his God. He said that if God brought him back to his homeland, then the Lord would be his God. But Jacob was still unconverted, still deifying his deception. Now let us see how God subdued Jacob and transformed him from being a broken vessel to a vessel of blessing. And turn with me to Genesis chapter 32, verse 22. Genesis 32, verse 22. And we first see in this enigmatic, mysterious story we first see that God singles out the disobedient. God singles out the disobedient. The text reads in verse 22, The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else 
that he had. And Jacob was left alone. Jacob received word that Esau was coming to meet him. And Esau was coming with 400 men, perhaps to kill Jacob in revenge. And this was the Esau whom Jacob had robbed. And for the first time in his life, Jacob is terrified and powerless. He had no more tricks up his sleeve. And in desperation, he sent gifts to Esau to try to appease him. But that same night on which he sent gifts to Esau, Jacob was still restless, still troubled, still in turmoil. And it wasn't just darkness that covered the night sky. It was darkness. There was darkness in Jacob's soul. And it's significant that this, this event happens at the nighttime. You see in verse 22, the same night. For it was in the darkness of night that God would come to Jacob to remove the darkness from Jacob's life. And Jacob sent his, his wives, his children, and everything he had. The text is emphatic here in verse 23. You notice that he sent everything else that he had across the stream. And Jacob wanted to be alone. When he left the land of Canaan 20 years ago, he left alone. And God met him alone and made that promise to him alone. And you get the sense that Jacob wanted to clear away all the distractions, even his, his family, the, the noise, his possessions, everything that he had, so that without distraction, he could seek God. And that's exactly what the text tells us in verse 24, that Jacob was left alone. Beloved, when, when God comes to deal with us in our disobedience, he singles us out. We do not come to him with a crowd partaking in community repentance. We cannot ride on the, the repentance of others or expect that by with association, that by association with the godly, God will reckon us righteous. No, God must deal with our individual rebellion. He must deal with your sin individually and with mine. When a child disobeys and requires discipline, a father does not discipline the child in sight of the rest of the family. But no, the, the father takes the child to a private room to correct the child's waywardness. The child himself does not want to be paraded in front of the rest of the family, but he wants to privately shed his tears. So God, our Heavenly Father, singles out the disobedient to deal with their disobedience. If you, this morning, are in rebellion against God, then God will isolate you in your disobedience to deal with your wickedness, to remove the fatal flaw that is within your character. You do not come to God with many. You come to God alone. So we see first in this account, in God's subjugation of Jacob, that God singles out the disobedient. 
we also see that God subdues the desperate in verses 24 to 26. And the text reads, and, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, earlier in verse 11, Jacob pled that God would deliver him from the hands of Esau. But Jacob was unaware that it was not Esau whom he should fear. There was one stronger than Esau, one more powerful than Esau, who was coming for him. Another assailant was coming to wrestle with Jacob. And I I love the understated nature of the word of God. In verse 24, it just says, and a man wrestled with him. If this was a film today, there would have been, you know, this, this dim light and this drumming music and a man coming from the distance, coming to wrestle with, with Jacob. But the scriptures are just so understated. It's, it's, it's a man, and a man comes to wrestle with him. And we are not told immediately the identity of this man, and, and the identity of this man is only slowly revealed to us. But as we, as we read this account, we discover that this man is no mere man, but God himself. You see in verse 30, God's, or Jacob says that I have seen God face to face. And in the Old Testament, when God comes to his people in the appearance of a man, we, are, we, we can say with confidence that the identity of this God is, is Christ Jesus himself. This is not just God the Father. This is not God the Father, but Christ Jesus himself. This is what is called in the Old Testament a Christophany. And Jacob, as he wrestles with this man slowly begins to realize that this is God. And just put yourselves in Jacob's shoes in this account. Someone comes to wrestle with you in the middle of the night, and he wrestles with you all the way to the breaking of the day. And this man has unlimited energy. He wrestles with you, and he doesn't tire, and he's continuing to attempt to submit you And you realize this isn't just a man, but God himself. What a terrifying realization for Jacob. And you notice in verse 24 that it doesn't say that Jacob wrestled with the man, but that the man wrestled with Jacob. God is the aggressor in this account, and Jacob is the defendant. And this wasn't just a short fight, but one that lasted for hours and hours. Wrestling for several minutes is exhausting. For hours on end is perhaps threatening to your very life. But for Jacob to wrestle for hours speaks of his desperation. And Christ came to subdue Jacob this night to wrestle him into submission. The poet Francis Thompson in a previous century wrote one of the greatest poems in the English language. It was was Tolkien that said that this was the greatest poem written in the English language called The Hound of Heaven. And Francis Thompson writes of his own attempt to flee from God 
and how God, as the hound of heaven, ultimately came to pursue him and subdue him. If you are fleeing from God this morning, I assure you that there is one in heaven who can and will pursue you until your life is in submission to him. All throughout the scriptures, we read accounts of men who attempted to flee from God, but they were unable. We read of Jacob. We read of the Apostle Paul, who formerly was Saul, attempting to flee from Christ, and Christ came to subdue him. We read of Jonah attempting to go on a boat and and sail away. God sent a large fish to subdue him. God is all-powerful to save sinners. And praise God that he is. And we see in verse 25 that this man saw, this man, God himself saw, that he did not prevail against Jacob. And that is not to say that Jacob was conquering over God, conquering God in this fight. But that as, as this man is, is attempting to subdue him, to, to, to put that final pin upon Jacob, and perhaps even to deliver a fatal blow, Jacob is still resisting and still fighting back. And so this man, this aggressor, by one touch of his hand, dislocates Jacob's hip. You see in verse 25, he, he touched Jacob's hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And it's as if God is is saying to Jacob, Jacob, will you continue to resist me? Will will you continue to, to fight back against me? Let me show you how futile this is, Jacob. I will physically disable you to bring you to the point of surrender. But you notice that Jacob is, is still, in a sense, fighting back, still wrestling. In verse 26, the man says to Jacob, let me go, for the day has broken. Jacob is, is still clinging with all his might to God. He is not letting go. And God is telling Jacob, let me go, for the, for the day has broken. Jacob, it's, it's time for you to meet Esau. And look at Jacob's response. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And and hear the desperation in Jacob's voice. I will not let you go until you bless me. Now at this point, God has Jacob exactly where he wanted him. Desperate, dependent, broken. For all his life, Jacob received fortune and blessing by his own cunning, by his own scheming. Jacob was a self-made man. But God does not believe in self-made men. It does not bring him glory. Now God reduced Jacob here to the point where Jacob can only receive God's blessing by clinging and begging. What a transformation. 
Jacob's plea for for blessing demonstrates that he knew who this man was. Only God can grant blessing. In Hosea chapter 12, verse 4, it reads, He that is Jacob strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He wept, it says in Hosea. Jacob wept before God as he sought his favor. And isn't this a clear picture of faith? That Jacob is clinging with all his might to God. And in the midst of the greatest fight of his life, Jacob is clinging and begging. Beloved, if you are undergoing a fiery trial this morning, if you are undergoing the the trial of your life, as it were, and you are in deep waters, I believe Jacob is an example to you that you are to continue to cling to God with all your might and do not let go. That you are to hold fast to him. And you are to plead with God for blessing. God, I know you are wrestling with me and striving with me. But God, in the midst of trial, may there be blessing. And if your life is built upon a rotting foundation, you see where God had brought Jacob during this fight to to a point of desperation and humility. God needed to demolish Jacob's self-dependence and burn it down. And so if your life is built upon upon a rotting foundation, so God must burn that rotting foundation of your life so that he might rebuild it upon a foundation of trust in him. If you are trusting in your intellect, in your wealth, in your charm, charisma, or determination, then your life is built upon sinking sand. And and when the, the waters come of trial, then your house, your life will be washed away. God would ask you through this text, upon what is your life built? Is it built upon trust in me? Or is there another idol in your life upon which you depend? And may we say with the songwriter that all we have is Christ. And on Christ, the solid rock we stand. And we see in this account that God singles out the disobedient, he subdues the desperate, and he also saves the deceiver. Now Jacob has requested at this point that God bless him. How will God respond? First, we see that God brings Jacob to the point of confession. In verse 27, God said to him, that is Jacob, what is your name? What what a strange response to a request for blessing. Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And then God tells Jacob, what is your name? Does that seem a little bit strange, a little bit unexpected? Now, before God can bless Jacob, 
He must address a fatal flaw in Jacob's character. He needs to remove a deadly disease that will prove destructive to Jacob's life and to God's plan to use him as a channel of blessing to the entire world. God must address Jacob's scheming and conniving nature. And God did not request Jacob for his name because he was unaware of his name. No, God obviously knew what Jacob's name was. God instead wanted Jacob to confess his name, to own up to the guilt that his name represented. God wanted to admit and confess that his character was fitting with his name. And Jacob responds, Jacob, my name is Jacob. And Jacob's declaration of his name was a confession. And he's saying, as it were, I am Jacob. I am a deceiver, a liar, a trickster, a supplanter, a schemer. I have trusted in my own cunning and deception instead of you, O God. And I think that's informative for us today, that before God can transform and bless us, he must bring us to the point where we see and acknowledge our specific sins. And you notice that God isn't just calling Jacob to account for his general rebellion. It wasn't just Jacob's general disobedience that Jacob had to confess. No, it was Jacob's specific sin, his besetting sin that he had to confess and forsake. If God was wrestling with you that night and not with Jacob, and he was to ask you, what is your name? What sin dominates your life? How would you respond? What are you worshiping? And upon what are you depending instead of God? What would you say? It's a powerful question, isn't it? And I, I love reading accounts when people are saved in the Bible because God doesn't just come in and condemn them immediately. He questions them. In Genesis 3, we read of, of God seeking for Adam and, and calling out to Adam, Adam, where are you? Did you eat of the fruit of which I commanded you not to eat? With Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Jacob, what is your name? And these questions are, are intended to draw us out, to lead us to the point of confession, of acknowledgement of our sin, our specific sin. If God were to question you, what would you say? Many people, as they undergo the trials of life, never come to this point of confession. I, I, it just grieves me as I, as I know of people throughout the years, 
friends from, um, from years ago as they, as they continue to reap the folly of their idolatry. And, and from a, you know, a third-party point of view, as I see them undergoing difficulty, I can see that they are reaping the folly of their sin and foolishness over and over again. But they never come to realize what leads them into that difficulty in the first place. They never come to realize their specific sins. Beloved, let us learn the lessons that God has for us as we undergo trials. And let us recognize and identify the the specific sins that we must forsake. And let us not continually reap what we sow. But Jacob did confess. He did say, my name is Jacob. So we see that God brings Jacob to the point of confession. And now that Jacob confesses his sin, God can now begin to transform him. In verse 28, then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. God replaced the reproach and shame of Jacob's old name with a name that reflected God's grace. And this name change was indicative of a deeper spiritual change that happened within Jacob. He was no longer the supplanter, the cheater, the deceiver, but one with whom God wrestled. And Israel literally means God strives. And the significance of God renaming Jacob as Israel, God strives, was that now Jacob was one who received blessing by striving with God. Jacob learned that in order to receive blessing, God must first strive with him and subdue him. God came to Jacob that night to wrestle with Jacob, to bring him to the point of surrender. And Jacob, from this point on, no longer received blessing by scheming and conniving, but by bowing the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jacob received blessing on a bended knee. As a result of God striving with him and subduing him. Jacob prevailed with God because he surrendered to God. And you notice that Jacob was not utterly defeated by God. God could have chosen to completely destroy and slay him, could he not? But Jacob, at the end of the wrestling, received blessing and not a curse. And in that sense, he prevailed with God. God chose to bless him. And Jacob's descendants formed the nation Israel. So Jacob is renamed by God, Israel, and the nation that came from Jacob's descendants also was called Israel. I think this name was not just to describe Jacob, the man, the patriarch, but to describe the nation and how the nation was to receive blessing. One commentator writes this. 
He said, whenever Israel's descendants heard this name or used it to describe themselves, they were reminded of its origin and of its meaning, that as their father had triumphed in his struggle with men, i.e. Esau and Laban, and with God, so they too could eventually hope to triumph. Now Israel, as they referred to themselves as Israel, was to remember how they got that name. God came to Jacob to subdue him, to conquer him, and they were to receive blessing by submitting themselves to God. And so Israel was to receive blessing as a nation by surrendering itself to God. And you know, the really interesting thing about this account is that this account happens as Jacob is just eastward of the Jordan River. He's on the eastern bank of the Jordan River the night before he is to enter the promised land. When does the nation Israel receive the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy? It's on the plains of Moab, just east of the Jordan River, right before they are to enter with Joshua over the Jordan River into the promised land. So as Jacob is just east of the promised land, so the nation Israel is just east of the promised land. They're about to both enter into the land of Canaan. And Moses, the author of Genesis, wants to remind Israel, Israel, hear me, nation, hear me. This is how you got your name. Blessing comes through submission. This is how you are to be blessed by God. And biblically, there there is just such tremendous significance to God changing someone's name. As you remember, Christ changed Simon's name to Peter, Saul's name to Paul, to indicate renewal and transformation and discipleship. And God's change of name to Jacob indicates that Jacob was now transformed by God and was God's servant. Remember that Jacob vowed to God 20 years before this event that if God brought him back to the promised land, that God, the Lord, would be his God. And God made him fulfill his previous vow. God God has a strange way of remembering our vows, does he not? When we might forget them, he remembers Many of you today can relate to God's transformation of Jacob. You might say, I was once a liar, but now I love truth. I was once a people pleaser, but now I seek to please God alone. I was once an idolater, but now a true worshiper. I was once a thief, but now a hard worker. I was once self-absorbed, but now I love and serve others. I was once enslaved to sin and a vile sinner. But Christ has changed me and now I am a new creation in Christ. Hallelujah. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed my sins from me and Christ has made me a new creation. Many of you can say that. Because God has taken off the shackles of your sin and made you into a new creation by the power of his blood and resurrection. 
because Christ has shed his blood and died for you, so you are new. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, this story can be your story. Your life can be totally transformed by the sovereign grace of God. But you must come to a point of submission to God. You must bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And now that God has brought Jacob to the point of confession, now that God has transformed Jacob by giving him a new name, now God can bless him. In verse 29, then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. So Jacob wants to return the favor as it were and and ask this person his name. And you notice God says, why is it that you ask my name? And I think what God is saying to Jacob, Jacob, you know who I am. You don't need to ask me of my name. You know with whom you are wrestling. And there he blessed him. There God blessed him. And you notice that finally, as God has brought Jacob to the point of confession and transformed, and now God blesses him. Jacob receives what he had been seeking for his entire life. In verse 29, blessing from God. But at this point, he no longer receives it in dependence upon himself, but in total dependence upon God. What grace That not only did God save Jacob, he also blessed him. He showered upon him all the fullness of the Abrahamic blessing. And Jacob was an infinite debtor to God's blessing and grace that day. And we see that God singles out the disobedient. He subdues the desperate. He saves the deceiver. And finally, he also shines upon the delivered. God shines upon the delivered. Now that God has blessed him, now God will shine upon him. God's smile was upon Jacob. God's face shone upon him. You notice in verse 30, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face. Peniel means the face of God. I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. It's as if he's singing amazing grace, that God was a God of grace that saved a wretch like him. His life was delivered in verse 30. He recognized that God had shown grace to him. And you notice in verse 31 that the the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel. And I don't think Moses just wrote this as as a curious, perhaps meteorologist as it were, looking at the weather, making an interesting note about the sun rising. I think Moses wrote this to show that this account, this mysterious account of Jacob's salvation began in the night and ended in the light of day. That the darkness was was gone from Jacob's character. And the cloud that that shielded God from him was, was gone. And now God's full blessing was upon him as God smiled and shone 
his face upon him. The sun rose upon Jacob. And as as we undergo the trials of life, does it not feel like the clouds have have descended and the sun is not shining? Everything is is tinged with the, the tint of gray, is it not? Beloved, if you are in such a cloudy season, endure, for a season of sunlight will soon come upon you. And Paul wrote in Colossians 1, verse 13, that Christ has delivered us, or that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We are out of the domain of darkness and in the kingdom of the beloved Son of God. The sun rose upon Jacob as he passed Penuel, and Jacob was limping because of his hip. Now, Jacob left Penuel with two gifts from God. He left Penuel with a a new name that reminded him of his new nature and his new relationship with God. He left with a new name, and he left with a new limp that reminded him that in God, Jacob met one who could overpower him, one who was stronger than him, and one who could wound him. And God left Jacob with a permanent, visible reminder that God was stronger than Jacob. And beloved, God will often wound us as he tries us. You know, as we, as we pass by the, the trials of life, you remember them, don't you? And you still bear within your soul some of those wounds. And God leaves those wounds within us so that we can reflect and remember that it was God's grace that brought us out of such trials. And the theme of remembrance is what finishes this account in verse 32. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he that is God touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Moses wanted the people of Israel to know why their nation had such a dietary restriction. As the the centuries went on after this account, many people might have forgotten why they abstained from eating the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket. And Moses is neither a meteorologist or a dietitian. He wants them to remember why they abstain from eating this part of the animal. They must remember that God subdued Jacob that night and by subduing him, blessed him. And he wanted the nation of Israel likewise to go down on the bended knee of submission so that they could receive blessing. Now, now what do we do with this account as we sum up this story? Not just a story, but this historical account of Jacob's subjugation. The first thing that comes to mind is that God, the hound of heaven, will forcefully remove impurities from our lives. As, a, as an iron worker, 
refines the metal in, the, in the, the heat of the furnace to remove all impurities from the metal, to make it stronger. So God will put us in the furnace of affliction to forcefully remove the impurities from our lives. And sometimes it takes great force, does it not? For our sin is stubborn. Our idols do not go easily. We do not relinquish our cherished sins quickly. But the more quickly we confess our sin, the more quickly God is able to remove such impurities from our lives. So God, the hound of heaven, forcefully removes impurities from our lives. We also learn that the bended knee brings blessing. If God is striving with you this morning, there is really only one logical option for you, and that is surrender, total surrender. It is with God with whom you are striving. God is your assailant. Will you overpower him by continuing to fight back? You are unable to conquer And in the posture of submission, we are victorious. For God showers upon us never-ending blessing as we submit to him. And finally, we learn that we must cling to God and never let go. Jacob clung to God with all his might and pled with him that God would bless him. I'm reminded of the story, the parable of the persistent widow in the Gospels. And Jesus, as he instructed his people to pray, he told them, be like the persistent widow who went to the judge day and night to to plead with the judge for justice. Or the, the neighbor who pled with his neighbor, give me bread, right? Give me something to feed my guest. And the judge, out of pure annoyance, gave this widow justice. God would have us to persist in our affliction, to never cease clinging to him and pleading with him that he would bless us. Do not let go. And if you do not know God this morning, remember our main takeaway, that that God for his glory is able to save and sanctify Sinners, he is able to save and sanctify you. Will you submit your life to him? Let's pray. Our great God, you wrestled with Jacob thousands of years ago. And that contest was not to end, it did not end in Jacob's judgment and destruction, but it ended with blessing. And we praise you that you have not ceased wrestling with us. For you strive with us to cast away our sins. Our God, do not stop striving with us until you have removed all impurities from our lives. And do so until your Son comes. Amen.